Hey, welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and to trust Him more. To keep up with us or to get more information, visit CelebrationChurchLive.com. We are closing out our short story series today. And so uh, this is the final piece of it, part seven. And we've been looking at some, not all, but some of the parables of Jesus. And Jesus told his stories so that we could understand the heart of God in a better way. So if you've got your bulletin, your Bible app, however it is you're going to track along with your notes, um, then we're leading off with this idea that we have been invited to be transformed by the truth of God's love for us. And one of the ways the truth is revealed is through the stories Jesus used in his teaching. Jesus used these stories to help us to kind of shock his audience and get them to look in a new realm. Because they, like us, are were doing life with the experiences they had and the framework that they had. You're, you're, you're literally, every day, you're doing the best you can um, with the experiences that you've had. Here's the thing is, is that God wants us to be able to do something in a new way. So what we have to be ready to do is we have to be ready to kind of let go of all of that, the, the framework we've built based on our experiences, based on the way we've always done things and let God show us a new way to be able to live because his way, it's just better. And he, Jesus told these stories to get people out of their little routine and would bring a fresh narrative, a new idea to kind of get them to look in a new and fresh way. Because the problem is, is if you have your previous experiences, you'll just begin to try to do something new built on the old way of doing things. Uh, We just had our family vacation just this past week. And so as soon as church was over last week, we just got out of town and left. And we got in town yesterday evening. And so we were, the bookends of our vacation was hanging out with you guys. We started in and ended it hanging out with y'all. And while we were on vacation, we just rented a house um, and hung out and had a good time. There was, there's a bunch of us. And so for those of y'all who don't know, uh, we have seven children. Uh, four of them are married. We got two grandbabies that we get to hold and a third one on the way. And so, and I'm very excited. So um, this vacation, um, there were 16 of us on vacation. So a lot of us on vacation. And the house that we rented um, before it became a a vacation home um, had had this like metal building on it that you could tell was like the the man cave. Like it has, you know, the big roll-up doors. You know, somebody at one point, you know, had their tractor in there or their hot rod in there and all of their stuff. But as a vacation home, they, they took advantage of that, put some air conditioning in it, put some basketball goals at each end and turned it into a a cooled gym, which is awesome when it's 102 degrees outside. And so we all got to play some three-on-three full-court basketball 
Uh, thankfully, it's about two-thirds court was the actual distance, and this old grandpa was able to mostly make the transitions. Um, I didn't break anybody, and nobody broke me, and so that's thankful. I've, I've, one of the times I played basketball with my sons, I broke my finger, and so uh, thankfully, all that went well, but as we're there in the in this gym, there is this like tennis net um, up against the wall, and there are these like oversized ping pong paddles over there, and and this little like wiffle ball, and come to find out, oh, that's that's all the makings of pickleball, which I, I know all of you are very familiar with pickleball. I'm way late to this craze that's taken over America, um, and so but there's this stuff for pickleball, but we'd not played pickleball, but I, the only thing I did in, in sports in school was tennis, but only in middle school because I wasn't any good to play in high school. And so, but, you know, you see the net, you see the lines, you see the stuff, so we're like... This is like, just like mini tennis. So we're, you know, the first time the boys played, you know, they're just lift, throwing the ball, smashing it down. That's not how you serve in pickleball, by the way. It's found out you got to serve it underhanded and pop it up. And, and so, but we're playing and we don't know anything about pickleball. And for whatever reason, none of us decided to use the little cool device in our pockets and go to YouTube and go, how do you play pickleball? Uh, we just like, we're just going to play it like tennis. And so we just were playing it like tennis. We used tennis rules. We did all these things, which did not work out for me playing against my, my six foot three son because he would charge the net and he's right at the net. And I, I couldn't get anything past him. And I'm just like, this, this guy's a beast at the net. Well, before we, we were going to go into the town, into this space that had a bunch of pickleball courts, we're like, okay, before we do this in public, um, we probably ought to learn the rules. And so we watched a video on how to play pickleball. And about 45 seconds into that video, we realized we're doing this very wrong. And um, thankfully, I found out that none of Carson's points counted at all because he was up in the kitchen. So I'm the champion. And so, because he was foot fouling like crazy at the net. He's not allowed to be up in that space. And uh, we, learned the, we learned the right rules and, and then began to play by the right rules. And would, would you believe that playing with actual pickleball rules is more enjoyable. It is a better game when you play with the actual rules. When you don't try to take your past experience and shove it into some new thing, if you'll let the new thing be the new thing, it'll be better. There was a pivotal moment in that that unlocked being able to actually enjoy the game it was designed to be. And that was admitting ignorance. Saying, maybe we're not doing this right. Maybe we need some new information. The thing that's standing between the way that you're interacting with God and being able to step into something new is that one place of humility say, maybe I'm not doing this right. There's space in being able to, for your marriage to step up. You're like, well, I've seen how everybody else does it. We're, we're, we're doing it the best we can with the way I've seen it done. But if you go to God and say, God, 
how do you want marriage done? And be willing to give up the way maybe experience has told you to do it. Lord, how do you want friendship done? Because all I know is the way I've done friends and friends have done me. And maybe there's a new way to do friendship. Lord, how do I be a better employer? Is there a better way to manage my business? Is there a better way to be an employee? Is there a better way to be a parent? The step is all met with a place that you have to admit ignorance. Maybe I don't know everything. And what Jesus was doing with these parables over and over again is creating an opportunity for someone who felt like they understood things pretty good to take a fresh breath and go, maybe there's a better way to handle this. John chapter 8, verse 30 says, even as he spoke, many believed in him. And to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. That's it. That's the definition of a, of a disciple. We think a disciple is someone who has this wonderful little prayer life and wonderful little devotional life. And those are good. But the whole reason we have a prayer life and a devotional life and all this kind of stuff is so that we can do that first thing. We can hold to his teaching. And hold to his teaching is just simply saying, I'm willing to let go of what I had thought to grab a hold of what you have shown. That's it. And then we have our prayer life so I can let go of what I've thought to take hold of what you've shown. I have a devotional life so I can let go of the things that are holding me back so I can take hold of what you've shown. All of those aspects are a part of that and that is being a disciple willing to hold on to what he teaches, the way he wants us to be able to engage. And it's, there's a purpose behind it. It's not just so we'll be a bunch of disciples and that Jesus' heart is so full because he sees a bunch of people just holding on to his teachings. No, it's not for him, it's for us. In verse 32 it says, and then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. He wants you to hold on to his teachings so you'll be free. So you'll be free so that you can step into all that he has for you. So you step into all that he has for you. And to truly let the truth set us free. We must give up our need to justify ourselves. All of our justifications get down to this idea that we go, you know what? The reason I'm still doing it this way is because of this. You know what, God? You, you would kind of give me a pass if you really understood how much they hurt me. And that's why I'm guarded and that's why I'm back. The reason for these different things is because and I, I, I'm just in being just like I am because of this and that. We're never going to step into freedom if we do not give up on justifying ourselves. See, there's a space where justification is a big religious word. You go and you study what Jesus did and one of the things you'll encounter is justifying grace. What well, Jesus comes along and he, he's the one who justifies. He's the one who actually squares things away. He's the one who gets things the way they're supposed to be. 
And for you to embrace the justification that Jesus brought, you have to give up the justification you're hiding behind. You have to let go of what you're hiding behind to embrace the justification that he's brought. And we're going to see that begin to transpire here, this encounter that Jesus has that sets up a parable. Here in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, he's focused on the right thing. He's focused on eternal life. Remember, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus is in the life business, and he's asking a life question. He's on the right page. He's in Jesus' core wheelhouse. But he still has his focus on himself. What must I do? What do I got to do to get this squared away? So Jesus responds to him. He says, what's written in the law? He knows he's an expert on the law. You've got this figured out. Um, What's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus was asked the question of what's the most important commandments and this is exactly the answer Jesus gave. This guy sounds like Jesus' responses. He's giving the exact right response and in fact, verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear that from Jesus. Then when something comes out of my mouth, Jesus says, Brandon Clark, you've answered correctly. <laughs> yes, that's so what I want. He, he, he's, he's asking the right questions. He understands these things. He, he's answered correctly. And Jesus just goes on and leaves her life. He says, do this and you'll live. That's, that's, that's awesome. But, verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. See, he felt pretty good about the loving God part. Felt pretty good about that. Like I, loving God with all of my heart, all my, my soul, my mind, my strength. I, I, I feel like I'm doing that. In fact, I, I'm, I'm an expert in the law. I feel like I'm putting a lot of energy into that one. There's that second one about loving the neighbor as yourself. That one, I'm having a little bit of trouble with that one. So I need to get that one kind of squared away in a manageable way, okay? It's like, Jesus, you don't know my neighbors. Am I, who, who exactly is my neighbor? That's his question. And who is my neighbor? Is my neighbor the person that actually lives to the right and to the left of me? person that maybe leaving lives behind me? Or is it the people that live in my neighborhood? Do I have to love the people in my neighborhood? In my neighborhood? Is that where it goes? Is that, is that how far it has to reach? And we're going to find out that the neighbor is anybody you come directly in contact with. Anybody you come 
directly in contour. That is your neighbor. And as we get into this parable, we need to have this on our mind. We're going to look at it through this lens. That love unshown is love unknown. That is the heart of this parable. That love unshown is love unknown. We're going to have to be people who are willing to show, to demonstrate the love that should be alive on the inside of us. Verse 30 says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Leaving him half dead. I'm not exactly sure what half dead is. I saw the princess bride. I know what mostly dead is, but I don't know what half dead is. (laughs) But apparently half dead is that what these robbers, what these people have done to this man have created a trajectory that it it has released these different ill effects in his body and his body is on the way to death. It is halfway there. If someone doesn't intervene, the, the end result is going to be death for this man. They've left him half dead. Now he's, he's, he's laying there naked. So here's just this man. There's no articles of clothing that let you know if, if he's a Jew. Don't let you know if maybe he is of a higher ranking Jew or a kind of low common Jew. Doesn't let you know if he's a Roman. Doesn't let you know if he is potentially of one of the neighboring less savored groups of people in the area. He is simply a human laying there with no defining marks about him other than he has been attacked and he is in need. And in verse 31, it says, a priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And it's not that he didn't see him. It's not like it it, it escaped his notice. He wasn't on his phone and just sitting there and checking things out and answering emails and just didn't see him. No, he sees him. And he goes out of his way to avoid him. He goes on the other side of it and just completely doesn't render aid, doesn't do anything then stop to throw up a prayer, just says, I'm not having anything to do with this and go around. Now he's talking to an expert in the law. And so the priest, this first guy introduced into the story, this is the guy who's top shelf as far as the Jews go. The priest, he, he is of, of the, the top rank. They're admired and respected. And he's kind of the first guy who's not doing right. And then we have the next guy. And so to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. For those of you who don't know, the Levites, they are the tribe. They're the the group of people in Israel 
who have no inheritance as far as land and possessions of their own. Their entire lives are given and devoted to the service of worship of, of Yahweh, of, of, of Jehovah, of, of God. That is their entire life and they're, they're born into it. And the priests are of the Levitical tribe. But every Levite has this role and they're, they're an esteemed tribe. They're an esteemed group of people. And their role would have been to do the things that help make worship happen. Like a, a Levite, a Levite would be back there in the sound booth. Right now, though, those, those are Levites this morning. They're critical for our worship. They are helping us to be able to engage. They're ministering right now. And they might say, no, I'm running a mouse and I'm making some software work. No, they're, they're ministering. All of you who are watching remotely, you couldn't be doing this right now without those Levites back there. It's, it's vital. And here's the cool thing is, you know what? You can feel stirred towards ministry and not know what can I do. But guess what? You know what? Next week, you could be a Levite. Next week, you could help out. If you, if you have, you can click a mouse. You can show up 30 minutes earlier than service. You too can help out and, and be a part of that. We had Levites show up this morning and make coffee. 7 a.m. this morning. Got here. Some of you have already been up a couple of hours at 7 a.m. Some of you just got started getting some sleep at 7 a.m. And so, but they showed up and they made coffee and set out the bottles of water and the donuts. That's a place of ministry. You, you could be a Levite next week. You could step up and you could be a part of that. You could help and serve and minister and make a difference by helping to brew some coffee and do some coffee and donuts. We've got Levites who are loving on our kids and our nursery right now. It's making a difference. And here was this Levite whose life was a life of service. And here's an opportunity for a service to a person and he goes around. He, he wants nothing to do with it. Now before we get overly judgy, there's something this expert in the law knew top of mind that you and I don't typically know top of mind. And let's read it right quick. Let's read Numbers chapter 19 verse 16. Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who died a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. Well, this guy is half dead, certainly could look entirely dead or become dead while he's trying to help him. And this priest, this Levite, would then be unclean for seven days. And you're like, okay, well, why does that matter? Well, guess what? Whenever this happens in the whatever cycle of the week they're in, at some point in that seven-day period, they're going to cross a Sabbath. And that unclean priest and that unclean Levite will not be able to do their job if they go over and they touch this man and he's dead. And there's a place where they very easily could justify that the role I need to fulfill for all of these people as a priest and as a Levite for all these people is bigger than going over there and helping this one person. 
And they could feel very justified. I can't. I'll be unclean. I can't go touch that guy. And I'm just going to skirt around it and I'm going to move on. And you and I, we read this story and we we see two uncaring jerks. But the expert in the law and any people who were overhearing Jesus, they knew this scripture. They knew the rules. They're, they're, They're Jews themselves. And they're like, they had a just reason to not do it. But guess what? Jesus is letting us know we can't hide behind our places of self-justification. In fact, we're going to skip again to this next point, guys. That love responds in practical and meaningful ways. Love responds in practical and meaningful ways. Let's go ahead and look at verse 33. It says, but, but a Samaritan. This was shocking. This was surprising. Okay. A Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were majorly looked down upon by the Jews. They were, had nothing good to bring to the table. They were despised. They did not, they did not, they were not going to be the hero for us to kind of maybe put this in the framework is that you've got some Islamic jihadist shows up and we got a good little, you know, we got a good little Baptist and a good little charismatic person and they both go around and you have the Islamic jihadist who's got his AK-47 slung over his shoulder and he comes along and renders aid to get the same kind of like, there's no way this guy's going to be the hero. We'd have to put it in that kind of language. That's the Samaritan to them. But the Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And there's just, if you want to really get into this story, there's so many beautiful types and shadows of Jesus in here. And I I dare you to spend some time in it this week, but we don't have time this this morning. He said, but pours on the oil and the wine. and, And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers the question is is, so who's my neighbor and Jesus question was who acted like a neighbor who acted like one who actually was neighborly, who didn't hide behind their justification, who didn't hide behind their reasons why, who didn't hide behind those things. And the expert in the law replies, and notice his language, the expert in the law replies, says, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus called him a Samaritan. He didn't say, oh, the Samaritan did. His bigotry still showed up in the middle of it, and he couldn't even say, Samaritan is just the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That is what being a neighbor is. As soon as that person's, you're aware of them being in your life, of them being on the planet, of them existing, they're now your neighbor. So guess what? You get a phone call from someone letting you know that your auto warranty 
has run out. <laughs> and there's a human on the other end of that line. That hum- human is your neighbor. The waitress that got your sides wrong and everything hit your plate table a little lukewarm instead of hot she's your neighbor the people that you connect with they're your neighbor your boss is your neighbor your employees are your neighbor the people under the same roof with you are your neighbor yes you're still a parent and you're not to have be their friend but you're still their neighbor When your kids get old enough, do they want to stay your neighbor? We have to be good neighbors. James chapter 2, verse 15 and 17 says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith prompts it. It sees it. It recognizes something can change. And then we don't be the change. Faith didn't have the fruit that it was supposed to have. We're closing up right here, but I want to just quickly go through, and I want to show you. If you're familiar with with Gary Chapman's five love languages, if you're not, look them up, listen to some podcasts. It'll help you in every relationship you have at all. But the five love languages are demonstrated in this story. We'll look at verse 33 again. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds. He went and was near. He was in his presence. He didn't run away. We see quality time. He's pouring on oil and wine, bandaging his wounds. He put the man on his own donkey. We see acts of service. We brought him to an inn and took care of him. We see lots of touch closeness. The next day, he took out two denarii, reaches into his his money bag and is willing to pay and be generous. We see gift giving. And then gave them to the innkeeper. And now he begins to speak. And we know this, this guy that's been beat up is hearing it. Look after him. He said, it's hearing these things of care, these words of care. And when I return, it's not going to be abandoned. I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. I'm not done pouring out love. All of those are words of affirmation. We see all five love languages fully at work in the story of the Good Samaritan. This all flows back into Jesus' core call here in Luke chapter 4, 4, verse 18. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from, for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came to do stuff. Yes. <laughs> he came to do stuff. I'm going to say it again. Our bottom line today is love unshown is love unknown. We have to be willing to be good 
neighbors. Connect, share love. It's where it is. And our closest neighbor is the people that live under the roof with us. And then the people we work with every day and connect with every day. But all this begins by having the love of God alive and inside of our hearts. Thank you for listening to this message from Celebration Church. You can keep up with all that God is doing here at Celebration by following us on Facebook and Instagram. 